Right. Well, this morning uh, we are in Galatians chapter 3, and we've been going through this book of Galatians. And uh, so Paul, just to kind of give you some context of what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, in case you missed it, uh, Paul's just finished establishing his apostolic authority. Uh, he gives his testimony. He lists his credentials. He sorts out a little disagreement that he had with Peter, which is really funny to read about, honestly. Uh, and then, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is there are six chapters in Galatians. And the first three are Paul just kind of yelling at the Galatian church. <laughs> He's yelling at them for this issue that they're dealing with, with self-righteousness, um, with legalism, with uh, just a religious kind of attitude. And the third chapter, it kind of builds. The first chapter is kind of like a, a warm-up to yelling, and the second chapter, he starts the yelling. The third chapter, he just abandons all pretense of being nice whatsoever. Uh, but here's the deal. Next week, it gets a lot more encouraging. When we get to chapter four, I promise you that. It's not just like this whole book isn't yelling, yelling, yelling. Uh, but I want to talk about why Paul is so harsh. Oh, by the way, next week we get to be, talk about being sons and daughters and heirs of God, which is really cool. You're going to want to be here next week. And then chapter five, we get into the, the fruit of the spirit and what that looks like in our lives. But I want to answer the question, why is Paul so harsh in these first three chapters? Why does he spend so much time on this particular issue? Well, if you look at it initially, you, you might think, and I don't see what the big deal is here. Like, he's probably going a little bit overboard. Um, listen, the people of the church are, are just wanting to do a little bit more. They're wanting to do something extra. And so um, it's, it's this issue of circumcision in the church. And, and why is that such a big deal to the Apostle Paul? In fact, if we look at the Corinthian church, which is one letter before the book of Galatians, they were far more stupid than the Galatian church, okay? They were engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality. They were extremely divided. They idolized human authority. They had a lot of problems. And Paul firmly but patiently walks them through each of their issues in a much gentler fashion and manages not to call them idiots, which he's pretty much going to do in this chapter three here. Now, I, I want to ask the parents in the room something. When your kid does something that you know is wrong and you, you do your best to like lovingly correct them, right? You're not looking to scar them for life because they forgot to make their bed, right? Like you, you try to teach them with patience and with compassion. Now, I'm not going to berate my five-year-old daughter for putting her socks in the wrong drawer, Right? If I did, that would be messed up. And we'd all agree that would, be, that would be messed up. But there comes a moment in discipline and in correction when the tone changes. How many parents know what I'm talking about? Right? <laughs> now, for me as a parent, there are two things where, where my level of correction kind of elevates to maybe, maybe a, a slightly louder tone. Some might call it yelling. I don't want to go that far. I know that you think of me as just a very patient person that would never yell at their kids, and, and I want you to keep thinking that way. <laughs> but there are two things that could potentially set me off, and the first is a, an offense that's repeated over and over and over again, right? 
You try to teach your kids something, you correct them, you show them the right way, and they keep doing it over and over and over, and eventually you feel like you need to yell because you're not getting through. And that happens in scripture sometimes too. It's like the, a repeated offense, and, and you even see this with Paul, that, that he, he gets upset and, and he uses that kind of louder tone in his writing. Um, but the second one is, is more applicable to what we're talking about today. And that's a choice that causes imminent danger. So, well, your response might be, honey, your socks need to go in this drawer, but thanks for trying. If your child is about to stick a key into the electrical socket, <laughs> you're not likely to say, wow, good job recognizing those shapes line up. <laughs> No, 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 no. You're going to try to scare them, right? You're going to yell at them because you know that that's going to harm them, that that could potentially cause an injury as a result. So you're going to yell, stop, right? Your goal, you, you might teach them afterwards, but your goal is to shock them. Your goal is to shock them so they don't shock themselves, okay? Uh, or maybe your kid's about to run into the street, and your response isn't going to be, wow, you're really fast. I'm so proud of you for your moving your little legs so fast. Great job getting away from me. No. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to grab their hand, and you're going to march them over to the little squirrel that has big tire tracks in it. In the middle of the road, you're going to say, see this poor woodland creature with its blood and guts spilled out all over the road? That's going to be you if you keep this up, right? And you're not doing that because you're harsh. You're not doing that because you're mean. You're doing that because you don't want your child to die, right? And so when Paul is yelling here in this instance, and believe me, I know it's a written message, but he's yelling, and you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about here. He's doing that because self-righteousness leads to imminent danger, this is not something to mess around with. It's not something to, to um, be cute about. This is a serious issue. And what they're ultimately doing in, in the Galatian church here is they're altering the gospel message. And they're making it about something that isn't Jesus. And that's a big, big deal. In fact, what they're doing by adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ is removing Christ from the gospel completely. So let's read Paul's yelling in Galatians chapter 3. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me there, it's going to be on the screen as well. But Galatians chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 1. We're going to read most of this chapter this morning. We'll skip a few verses for time's sake. But here we go. Verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Okay. Let me, let me translate into, I know that's, that's a Greek translation. It's a little bit hard to understand. Here's what he's saying to the Galatian church. Hey, knuckleheads! <laughs> Can I get your attention, please? Uh, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit and now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it indeed was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you 
and works miracles among you, do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you the nations shall be blessed. So then those of you who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, let me give you a little bit of backstory, a little bit of history about the church in Galatia. Galatia was a province within modern-day Turkey. And there was a cluster of churches uh, in several cities within that province that Paul had started on his first missionary journey. And so Paul is writing to a church that has been established for probably about 15 years now. These are not baby Christians. Uh, at least many in the church would not be brand new believers. They, are, they should be mature believers. They should be well established in their faith. And what Paul says to them is, Who's bewitched you? Paul's frustrated because somehow the Galatians have started buying into this false doctrine of works righteousness. And he's wondering who came here and manipulated you into this pattern of thinking that you, um, and we find that somehow they've bought into this false doctrine of works righteousness. He's, he's at a loss here, honestly, because... He's dealing with the exact same issue back in Jerusalem. In fact, we read in, in chapter 1 about how Paul had this disagreement with, with several of the other disciples who have been kind of led down this path. And it makes sense being in Jerusalem among the Jewish believers that they would be struggling with this. But now here, this corruption is spreading to the church in the province of Galatia as well. And he says... Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, I mentioned this already. Um, it's a province in Turkey that's about 500 to 600 miles away from Jerusalem. It's about the same distance as Minneapolis to St. Louis, Missouri. All right? It's not that far, right? Try walking it. Okay? I mean, we're not talking about neighboring cities here. We're not talking about Delano to Watertown here. We're talking about a long distance, okay? There were no cars. There were no planes. There was no quick way to travel back and forth between those two places. And Paul says, see before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand. He's not saying they literally saw Jesus Christ on the cross. In fact, it's highly unlikely that anyone in the Galatian church physically saw Christ crucified. So that's not what Paul is saying here. He's stating that they have seen the power of the gospel message, that they've seen it transform their own lives, that they've seen the work of Christ on the cross and what it's done for them. And, and I love how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, for the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Right? That's, a, that's a great interpretation of what's going on here. He's saying, you have seen 
what the, the power of the gospel message does in your life. I've explained to you what it is. You know it as well as if you were there in person. And when you were at your worst, when you were dead to rights, deserving hell, God said, I love you. Would you come be a part of my family? And the only way that that works is when my son Jesus, his blood covers all your sin and washes you as white as snow. Father says, when I look at you, I don't see your filth. I see his righteousness. Now, if that is the gospel and God receives us at our very worst, then why are you now saying that you have a part in your righteousness? That's why this message is so serious. That's why Paul is being so blunt here. That's why we're preaching for the third week straight on this particular issue. Here's the reality. Religion kills, right? Now, I'm not talking about true faith in Christ. I'm talking about what the world has, has looked at and defined as religion. What the world believes, that is not a, a beneficial message. That's not helpful, if we're placing our faith in anything besides the work of Jesus Christ and the cross, then we're missing the point. And you know what? We do it all the time. Like, it, at this particular time, the issue was circumcision. And, and listen, we're not really fighting about that anymore. But that's just an example of what this can look like. Anytime you place your faith in something other than the work of Jesus Christ and the cross, you're setting yourself up for, for, for potential failure. And, and this happens as we mature in our faith and as we become more like Christ. What happens as we receive his righteousness, our behavior starts to change because we want to be more like Christ. That's a natural consequence. In fact, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, how that happens. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. But then what happens as a result of that is we look at the changes in our life. We see what God has done in us and we start thinking, huh, yeah, I've grown a lot, Right? And now it becomes about my behavior rather than what he's done for us. It becomes about my righteousness rather than his. There are no levels of justification, right? We talked about justification last week. It's this idea that, that because of the work of, of Jesus Christ, it's just as if we never sinned. He makes us completely righteous, completely holy. We stand before the Father blameless and innocent, there are no levels of innocence. It's either you're innocent or you're not, right? You're either guilty and condemned or completely innocent. There's no in-between. There's no levels of justification. Well, I, and when I first got saved, I was justified, but then I really got justified because I started behaving more like Christ. That's stupid, right? That doesn't even make any sense. But that's what we do in our minds sometimes. Uh, Verse 3, if we go back, it says, Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit, and now you're being perfected by the flesh? That's why this is so important. When we start depending on ourselves for our own righteousness, we stop relying on the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul is yelling, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Let's keep reading in verse 10. It says, 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, if you're wondering what he's talking about when he's referring to abiding by the book of the law, he's talking about the law of Moses. See, the, the history of the nation of Israel, they were descendants of Abraham. Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. Jacob's name was, was changed to Israel, and his descendants became the people of Israel. So when you hear children of Abraham, that's what they're talking about here too. But when, when Christ came on this earth and died for our sins, uh, he made a way for us all to be adopted into his family. Because through genetics, you might not be a descendant of Jacob. But because of what Christ did on the cross, now God has opened up the possibility for us to be adopted into his family, to be part of his lineage and his heritage as well. So that's where this language comes from. And this law that he's referring to is the law of Moses. This was the law that was set in place for God's people to follow, for them to be righteous, so that they could have interaction with God. And um, as, as a result of this, there were rules that they had to follow. There were things that they could eat. There were things uh, that they had to sacrifice. There were uh, rituals that they had to perform. Uh, it involved a lot. And we just read in this verse, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. All right, you know who, that, who that's referencing? Everyone. Okay, there is no one in history that has ever abided by all the things written in the book of the law. Even from the very beginning, there's been no one that has done that with the exception of Jesus Christ. So he's basically saying, cursed is everyone. You could just finish this, the verse right there, right? Like if you read verse 10, cursed be everyone. We'll just cross off the rest of that verse. It's not necessary because everybody fits in that category. And now the Galatian church is saying, okay, yeah, but you know, there's, there's what Jesus has done for us. And then there's there's what we can do too. And if we put those things together, that's got to be even better, right? Like, think of it this way. If you were a zero, which is what you were before Christ came and saved you, sorry, I, I know that's disappointing to some of you, but listen, you were born into sin, you were born dead, okay? You were born a zero, and Christ came into your life and made you a 10. Instantly, the moment that you received his grace by faith, you have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's awesome. That's exciting, right? And so now 
you're over here, you're in a good place, I'm a 10, and now like it started to creep into change my behavior, and, and now I don't respond the same way that I used to before I knew Christ, and I'm growing spiritually. And, and what Paul is saying, why would you want to start over back here again? And let, let's say you started at like a point one instead of a zero. It doesn't mean that you're going to be an 11 next time, right? No, it's you're still a zero without the work of Christ. If you add anything to it, it no longer becomes about what he's done for you. Now, the, the law of Moses was incredibly important to the people of Israel. It was their way that they accessed communication with God. It was the way that, that um, they could be in his presence. And so it was it was a huge deal for them. It was precious to them. And I don't think that we as Christians today have the same appreciation for the law that the people of, of um, Jerusalem and the time that this was written had for that law. In fact, I'll be honest, when, when I'm reading through the Bible and I get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if you know, you know, okay? You get through Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I'm not saying that it's not good, that there's not good stuff in there, but I'll tell you what, when I got to read for hours about a young goat being boiled in its mother's milk and stuff like that, I'm just like, okay, you know what? I know this is important, God, but, but I don't have the same appreciation for it that someone who that's, that was their access to their heavenly father. It was everything. It was what separated them as God's people. It was what made them unique. And so... As Paul is saying this, you can follow the law to the letter, but the truth is the law never saved anyone. He's even, he's even going after the foundations of their belief. He's saying, listen, the law made it possible for you to be in God's presence, but, but it's not the law that saved you. In fact, even Abraham was saved through faith. Uh, another way to, to look at this is to think of the law like an MRI, Right? Has anybody ever gotten an MRI before? I have not, thankfully, but I, I, I'm grateful for that. But um, I think it's an incredible medical device, right? They, they put you in this thing and it can show you what's going wrong. And let's say, let's say you um, injure your shoulder and your, your arm's really hurting. And so you go into the hospital, they put you in the MRI machine and, and they come back with a scan and they confirm that, that you have torn tendons in your shoulder. And uh, so you're talking to the doctor afterwards, and they're like, well, let's, when should we schedule the surgery? And, and you say, oh, surgery? I, I, don't, I don't need to have a surgery. I just had an MRI. Like, that, that's what I came in here for today. I'm good now, right? No, the MRI machine diagnoses the problem. It doesn't fix it. Nobody's ever been fixed by the MRI, right? It shows you what's wrong so that you know what to correct, and that's what the law does for us. It shows us how broken and how hopeless and how devastated we are without the work of Christ. It doesn't save you, but it shows you that you need a Savior, right? That's what it's good for. That's what it does, and that's what, what Paul is saying here. He goes on to talk about Abraham. And now 430 years before the law ever existed, God made a covenant with Abraham, in the same way, the work of Jesus is not dependence on adherence 
to the law, neither is the blessing of Abraham. Now, because we are children of God, because we've been adopted into his family, now we inherit those blessings as well. How cool is that? Verse 18 says this, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That's ours because he said it was ours. It's not required that you do anything. It's not required that you behave a certain way. It's not even required that you don't do certain things, right? It's just promised to you because that's who God is and he promised it to us. If you are a spiritual son and daughter of Abraham, then the blessings that God has extended and the promises that God gave to Abraham are true for us today too. Because he said it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to manipulate your way into it. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Right? It's given freely. His grace is given freely. His blessing is given freely to us. So what do we do with this? I want to give you three things, three practical things that you can take with you, um, that you can use. The first one is to receive God's grace. Now, I know that this is like a, a very basic idea. And it's like, yeah, of course I received God's grace. But listen, I'll just be completely honest here. As a natural tendency, my self-worth is often really derived from what I do. Anybody else like that? Can you relate to that? Like if I accomplish a lot in a day, if I can check a bunch of things off my list, I'm pretty happy with myself. I'm pretty proud of myself. I pat myself on the back. But if it's a less productive day, or things aren't working, or I'm trying to do something and I can't figure it out, I'm pretty hard on myself, right? That is a natural tendency. That is kind of who we are in our humanity. And it's very hard for us to grasp the concept of being happy because of who we are. It's not my self-worth is derived from what I accomplish. It's that my self-worth is derived from the fact that I'm a child of God. And that anything that I do is for his glory, not for my own. So receive his grace. And then the second thing that you can do is to demonstrate that grace to others. Okay, now this is a harder one. It's even harder than receiving God's grace because if we don't believe that everything that we are, that that everything good that we are comes from him, that his grace is what validates us and what makes us who we are, then we sure aren't going to be able to give that grace to anybody else, right? Do you know what the worst sin is in in the church today? It's the one that somebody else commits. (laughs) Think, think, it'll come to you later, okay? (laughs) Right? we definitely rank our sins, and the sins that we commit, we kind of can, can make excuses for, oh, that's not so bad. But the ones that somebody else is struggling with, I don't struggle with that. That's much worse than that. They're in a much worse place than I am, right? We inherently feel this need to put others down so that we feel better about ourselves. And, and Paul puts this in a perspective. In fact, at the end of this chapter, this is what he says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There are no second-class Christians. Now, I'll be honest. Seeing a lack of of spiritual maturity in Christians sometimes makes me crazy, especially somebody who should be more mature than they are, right? I want to strangle people sometimes. Anybody else relate to that? Like you look at the people across from you and you're like, oh man, Lord, do something in their life already. <laughs> like that's how we are. We're immature that way that, that we don't see people through the lens that, that Christ sees them at. But if we're all the same, if we're all part of God's family, there are no second class citizens and so we need to learn to be patient with each other and extend. If, if God extends his grace to them, then we should too, regardless of how stupid they're being, okay? Here's the third thing. Start pursuing God's heart. You know, one of the biggest reasons why some of us struggle with spiritual discipline is we, we view them as a chore rather than a privilege. We see them as a duty and a responsibility rather than an honor. It changes everything when you approach your time with the Lord as, wow, I get, to, I get to be in the presence of my Heavenly Father today. I can speak directly to Him and He hears my voice. I can be quiet and listen and He speaks to me. That's an incredible reality. So now when I, when I open the word of God, I don't do so because, okay, it's, it's, it's Monday. I've got to read my Bible today. I've got to check that off my list. No, it's God has given us this incredibly precious gift. And every opportunity we have to hear his voice, we got to take advantage of that. So it, it becomes less about what I have to do and more about what I get to do. When we tune our heart into the, the heart of the Father, when we start pursuing God's heart, we begin to see our relationship with God as precious. And the religion becomes less important. The behavior doesn't matter so much. It's about me and my Heavenly Father. It's about His incredible love for me. About His incredible gift of His Son that died on the cross for my sins puts everything else into perspective, that shapes everything that we believe. It makes us more patient with others. It makes us more um, connected to the rest of the body of Christ because we see them as family now, and it gives us purpose in our mission. It takes away the duty. It takes away the obligation, and it gives us the freedom to pursue the heart of God in an incredible way. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you didn't come to this earth to bring religion, but you came to tear down the barriers, that the, the veil was torn in the temple, demonstrating that access that we have to you. Lord, I pray that we live each day with an appreciation of what you've done for us, that your incredible gift of salvation through Jesus is what paves the way for us. It means everything to us. Lord, I, I pray against any self-righteousness in your church. Lord, in any area that we're depending on ourselves to be what, what we need, Lord, I pray that we would drop that and be dependent on you instead. 
And Lord, that we recognize the incredible love and the incredible grace that you've demonstrated for each one of us. We love you, Jesus, and we give you praise in your name. Amen.